What's up, Matt? How are you doing, man? Dude, good. Good to be here. So for anyone who is just now listening and anyone who might not know Matt, uh, Matt is honestly one of the smartest human beings I've ever met, probably in terms of like specific physical therapy, um, you know, rehab, injury prevention. And especially now I'm seeing a lot of the stuff that you're posting where it's more like athleticism based. There's a lot more cross domain and you're starting to like reach your, your tentacles out into a lot of different areas. I feel like, whereas before, like whenever we knew each other back in 2017, 2018, you were like uh, in physical therapy school, like you're really hammering down that stuff, which was like dope. I think I did your podcast, like, like six oh, yeah. months ago. Um, but no, man, I, I wanted to have you on this and you can obviously introduce yourself here in a second. I wanted to have you on just so we could talk about like some of the things that are like interesting you now, kind of like where your brain is going. And maybe we can get into like kind of a deep dive in some of these like cool physiological anatomical things that maybe a lot of people would uh, overlook in their normal hypertrophic pursuits. So who is Matt Kinsterall? I'll pass that back to you, dude. Nice. Nice, dude. I appreciate the intro. Um, dude, I'm, I'm just interested in a lot of things, I think. Uh, so we both started out as trainers in Ohio, just like wanting to get people stronger, right? Like uh, you and I were both, uh, just around the Columbus, Ohio space. I think Columbus, Ohio is interesting because there's so many really, really great mentors and like people to learn from there and just like exposure to like really good ideas. Uh, for those who don't know, like the Arnold's in Columbus, um, West Side, uh, Elite FTS, just a lot of like really great minds. So I think like early, early on and like as a trainer, I was really introduced to a lot of like really good muscular training strategies and like just how to get really strong which are tangential to a lot of like other if, things that I'm personally interested in, like endurance um, and, and performance or sports performance and things like that. So I think over the last three years, especially I've, I've started to understand all the other associated adaptations with sports performance and endurance, like tendon adaptations and bone mineral density and cardiovascular training adaptations and like, like movement strategies to keep people healthy and like, moving well and rotating their joints well and distributing forces well while they're running and like all these other things um to to build a more comprehensive like performance training strategy so that's kind of where i'm interested in now is like what have i learned since since just kind of knowing a, a little bit more of a basic muscular route uh and now having like a lot more pieces to it um it just it allows me to solve different problems i think and and you know, there's, there's benefit to going both ways. I think like you can really dive into the muscular side and, and really become an expert in that and, and really drive good results there. But I think especially as like in the clinician space and in the coaching space where you're trying to work with like a bunch of different athletes, you, you do need to have some, some different strategies, uh, available to you. So that's, that's kind of where I've been interested in the last few years. Like long-term I've, I have so many goals, like just, I think it'd be cool to start like a performance facility to like really just like like my goal with like YouTube is to liberate the information about human movement to like the whole world. So like any of the stuff that took me seven years to learn through the formal education system, I just want to give that away to everyone who ever wants to watch it for free as best I can. Um, and that that's really my goal because I think a lot of people, <laughs> this is already like three tangents, but I think a lot of people end up through like the medical system. There's like, there's like, and even through like bodybuilding culture and through, through like different forms of learning about movement, there's a lot of like unwritten rules 
that end up kind of leading people astray in different in different situations, whether that be like a, from a rehab perspective, there's like rules about like, oh, you have to deload people and you have to really dial everything back. And then you have to be really slow. And, and, and you know, the medical system is based on the idea of like not harming the patient, which is like a great idea. Like we shouldn't harm patients. But also if we think from that lens first, like if that's our first principle for first principles thinking here, like then a, a lot of our training decisions are on the low threshold side. Right. And then we kind of ignore all of these high, higher threshold, higher load strategies that would be really beneficial to a lot of people. So that's another area where I'm just like trying to introduce people to. So, um, long story short, I have, I have a lot of different areas that I'm interested in and I'm, I'm sure we could talk about them. No. Yeah. And before we go on, um, want to talk about your background really quick. Cause I think I, I briefly mentioned how, whenever we met, you were in physical therapy school, like you were going to get your, your doctorate in physical therapy. So do you want to kind of talk about some of your background? Like you mentioned the cl- cl- oh, excuse me, clinical setting. Um, yeah. And where, where exactly is all of that coming from? Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I studied exercise. Well, actually I went to, I decided to go to Ohio state first because of their physics engineering program, which is excellent. And I, I love physics and engineering. Um, but I don't like programming or working with people. So after my first year, I decided, you know, like this probably isn't going to work out. <laughs> like I'd rather, I'd rather work with people than with code, <laughs> right? But I think like a lot of the objective principles of like, like physics really do drive like my decision-making at the end of the day. Um, so that's kind of like where I, where I started. Then I pivoted to exercise science, did that for my four-year degree and had some really cool opportunities through the Ohio State University to work with Nike and to work with like a bunch of really great mentors and um, just like learn about like all the things in Columbus and like the people that were out there. So by the end of my degree, I had like a wide range of interests from strength conditioning to performance to physical therapy, but I wasn't focused enough to actually get accepted to PT school. Like my grades were okay, but like I didn't like you could probably tell like through my essays that I'm like, oh, I'm just interested in a bunch of things, including physical therapy. And they were like, we don't really like that. Like we want you to just be related or interested in physical therapy school. So the next year I reapplied and said like, oh, this is what I really, really want to do. And then they were, okay. I mean, I kind of did, kind of didn't still, but I decided to go anyway and and do my PT degree. Um, But in that gap year, I had a lot of really good experiences. I worked as a high school strength and conditioning coach up a little bit north of Columbus and at St. Francis de Sales, started a personal training business and started getting more clients that I can handle. So then I ended up hiring a bunch of my classmates to train clients um, through like a, basically just like a good network of like doctors and and people that I had gotten good results for and just kind of grew that. Um, but eventually I, I decided that I like teaching more so than I do like training and it's also not as limiting. So I started just making videos and, um, those videos just were initially just like in the gym, you know, Instagram videos and then YouTube videos and Facebook live videos and podcasts. And five years later, that's kind of where we're at now, just like graduated PT school, but I, I don't really love the clinical setting and, um, and, and being there every day doing training five clients. Like I'd rather when I can, like learn about a lot more things and, and, uh, communicate a lot more ideas than I can in a, a rigid nine to five setting. It just like drives me crazy. So, um, yeah, I've, I've just got into a bunch of different things, uh, because of that. Yeah, no. And 
again, you know, like I, I think that what you're doing now is like really cool because in a lot of different aspects, it's what I've kind of tinkered with doing multiple different times. Um, yeah. but I, I still work with quite a few clients one-on-one, uh, obviously doing it in a remote setting is very different from doing it in, in a clinical setting. So there are one-to-one parallels there, but a lot of what you're putting out now is very much what I would consider to be like internet age, like education. Like it, it's like, you're going to get your degree in this, but this is like for the internet age. This is for anyone across the world to access. You don't have to you know, pay for, for schooling. You don't have to buy textbooks. You don't have to you know attend this university in person. You can do it all online before or earlier, excuse me, you mentioned that uh, you kind of want to liberate the information for everyone yeah. access to. And I think that's a really cool way of approaching things. And like, it's an awesome kind of motto to have with how you're going about educating everyone in this space. Because like what you mentioned, like there are a lot of silos of different information and different domains within exercise, within fitness, but mm-hmm. they're really barricaded inside of one another. Like, you know, there's, there's not a lot of overlap. There's not a lot of communication between these different areas. So you have, you know, strength, you have hypertrophy, you have, you know, athletic performance, you have rehab, you have all of these different things, but they don't really talk to each other very much. And in a lot of ways, like those domains kind of look down on all of the other domains too. They think that they're like inherently better for whatever reason, which is kind of funny, right? Like I'm more in like the, the hypertrophy yeah. world and I can kind of see how, how that applies even within this old, like my own area of expertise. Um, but where do you feel like you kind of were able to make that, that jet, that jump, that decision to rather than pursue a clinical setting and where you're able to train clients there and really utilize your degree to more so be an educator. Mm-hmm. Like, was that a really difficult decision for you to make? where you're like, shit, like this is really a leap of faith that I'm having to do this. Or were you like, no, this just feels natural to me. Well, I mean, I think I did it in a progressive way. Like there was really no leap for my, for me, just because like all throughout school, like I was training probably 15 clients, like through, through like grad school, I was probably training like 15 hours a week, um, with like personal training clients. And, but, but like certain time periods, like, oh, I'd be in the clinical and an hour away and you know, 40 hours a week. It's like, you don't really have like that much more time. So I just decided to like, um, kind of put clients on pause or we, I luckily had some other trainers working with me that could kind of like take things uh, on and off. But like, um, we, at that point, like I just decided like, it's easier to make videos because I can just do that anytime. Like as soon as I get home, I can just, if it's 8 PM or whatever, I just record videos for as long as I want to and just post them whenever I want to. So there's like more time flexibility to it. So I just kind of started doing it without worrying about like who was going to like watch them or anything like that. And it just ended up being like mostly just stuff stuff that I'm like, I wish I knew this like a couple years ago or even like a year ago. So it's like, I'm just going to talk about it. And then hopefully whoever also doesn't know about it and wants to, will find it. And and that just kind of has kept evolving. But you know, I, I'm trying to be part of the extreme middle (laughs) on most topics yeah like you think about like certain topics and it's like um let's just take a topic like neutral spine for example like should you lift with a neutral spine or should you do like jefferson curls and there's like people on like both camps that are like really extreme believers in like one or the other and it tends to be people who are pretty good at jefferson curls and have the trabecular bone to handle like flexion very well 
and like good hip mobility and like the ability to lengthen and expand their posterior side and shift their center of mass well who are comfortable doing these exercises that are like wow they're great and they helped me so they'll help every everyone and everyone should do them and then there's a whole other crowd with also millions of followers sometimes that are like you should only ever do neutral spine exercises because i learned from people who said that <laughs> Yeah. Because when you bend a pig spine 20,000 times a day, it might break. It's like, oh, I mean, what are, where do I stand? Because like I can listen to both of these people and almost always I fall like somewhere in the, in the middle, right? Yeah. I'm like, oh, there's people who will benefit from a more neutral spine strategy. But that also causes a lot of fear of movement and uh, other associated problems um, without ever flexing. Uh, but and there's also people who can do extreme flexion positions just fine. So it's like it, it's more about like individualizing to the person rather than taking like this broader strategy and, and and thinking that it applies to everybody, right? Yeah. And that same thing occurs with any topic like barefoot shoes. So people are like, oh, everyone should run always in barefoot shoes, and everyone should run in high squishy shoes. And it's like there's probably a middle ground here. Like I just make a video. It's like here's the benefits of each. Here's how I would distribute training load to two different shoes. If we look at the research, actually, uh, you could find research that supports barefoot shoe only running and some performance or mostly foot health and muscle benefits to that. But you could also find a lot of research that it probably increases injury risk, especially for long distance running. Uh, and you could study gait mechanics. You could you could look at all these different things, but it's like maybe the best strategy for, for like our current humans who have evolved to some extent to walk and sprint barefoot, um, but have decided to do like this middle distance recreational running three times a week. Like probably the the middle ground is, is going to be most beneficial. Like sometimes maybe wear a barefoot shoe and sometimes also like have the, uh, the, the more cushioned shoe available, especially depending on like training load and a lot of things. So it's like more often than not, I fall in the middle on most topics. I, I actually feel like, this is not, it's probably not like a fitness specific issue. I feel like across every area, this is probably an issue that everyone runs into within their own, like, you know, special niche of the world, whether it's, you know, like finance or whether it's engineering or whether it's, you know, like medicine, whatever, right? Like I would imagine that there's probably parallels where there are extreme camps and it's really hard to, to bring them together and find the middle ground. But Part of the problem I see, especially with um, with social media and with how important it is to have large followings for business, it's middle ground doesn't play well for like gaining followers. It doesn't play well for views. Yeah. Um, what does is extreme views and having extreme opinions and being very loud and saying them like yeah. very demonstratively and getting into arguments about them. Like that's that's like high viewer rate stuff. You know, like people want to tune in for the argument between the guy that has a million followers, the other guy that has a million followers, and they're debating, you know, whether you should RDL with a neutral spine or whether you should RDL with like a slightly extended spine, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, like, why do people care so, so much about this? Right. It's like, they don't care that much. It's just people arguing. That's, that's what they are, are into. It's like, you know, watching the, the train crash from across the street. It's like so much more fun being outside of the argument. Right. But mm, I think part, yeah, part of the issue that I see a lot is that the middle ground isn't sexy, and that's why polarization tends to to gain such like a 
cult-like following no matter where you are. Um, something in like the hypertrophy world, I'm sure that you you even understand this is like failure versus volume or intensity versus volume. Oh yeah, yeah. As as like a, a primary driver of hypertrophy, but like, dude, that has that is like an insane issue in the hypertrophy world. And you know, you have one camp that's like you know the very like dog crap esque like heavy duty Dorian Yates like mentality, really like, take every set to failure, very low volume. And you have another camp where it's like you know moderate intensities moderate to high volume you know you don't have to take any sets to failure at all like you can basically just do this um but it's interesting how both sides have like dug their feet in so hard it's like it feels very much like this should be a middle ground issue right like some failure is probably beneficial but like taking every set to failure for every single person is probably not beneficial it's like why does this feel controversial that um but no i definitely understand where you're coming from i think that that's like it's a huge problem, especially with like, again, you know, we're in the internet age where information can be distributed extremely quickly and broadly, but at the same time, certain people can kind of filter to the top or certain opinions. And those tend to kind of dominate whatever industry or whatever domain that you're in. And that could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing, especially like what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, uh, the other thing is like a lot of the decision-making that we're, we're making around these, these types of questions is based on two different perspectives. One perspective is like our own perspective, N equals one. It's like, what's worked for, for me? And that's like very, very heavily weighted in our influence of what thought processes we're going to take. And the other perspective is like, what works for most people? And that's like, oh, well, how do we find that? Like, maybe we look at a research article and we look at the average of how a large group of people responded to a training stimulus. In both of those cases, we're actually not getting a very tangible feel for like standard deviation and variability of training response. So it's like, they're actually, if you look at like a population or if you look at like a sample of a hundred people and, and no one does this because it's like really hard to do unless you have like a hundred clients that you've trained, um, in which case you can start to develop this, but like over a hundred people, it's like, there probably were going to be some, there's probably are some people who are going to respond differently to those two different training strategies. So it's like, it's, it's like maybe even like it's the wrong question to ask. It's like, which training strategy is best? It's like, which training strategy is best for you or for this situation, you know? Yeah. Like taking physiology and anatomy into account, but also psychology. I think that's something that really gets left out of the conversation a lot. So whenever you're dealing, you're dealing with real human beings outside of a laboratory setting, it really doesn't matter what is optimal. So it really doesn't matter which side you take because everything filters towards a normal distribution anyway. Like it, it always does. Yeah. Again, it makes no sense if you're taking a large enough population. It makes no sense to not just go with the middle ground with whatever thinking or whatever you know topic you're 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 talking about because the outliers are going to exist in in everything. But outliers are outliers, you know. Like it doesn't yeah. matter. You're talking about like you know, a single standard deviation or three standard deviations, it doesn't really matter. Like they're always going to exist. Like that's how statistics work, but you can't change everything you're doing to benefit outliers. Like you have to always think about, you think about whatever you're doing, think about the way that you're programming, think about the way that you're coaching with the majority in mind, right? Like I, I think that's yeah. what I've gone about things. And that's probably why like a lot of the approaches I have at the moment with my own coaching are a little bit more conservative because I just, I understand like, Hey, the main goal that we have is like keeping our clients healthy long-term. 
Like whoever's going to be able to do this for long enough without burning out and without, you know, suffering a serious injury is probably going to make better progress over the next 10 years anyway. So why does it matter if we have to sprint and get better progress the next year? If like we can just stretch that out over 10 years and just make sure that we get that progress, you know, and they're also going to have a better life and not going to be as stressed. So yeah, I know this is a, a huge tangent over what we were meaning to talk about, but I think it's, it's interesting to hear your opinions, but um, no, dude, I, I do want to pivot really quickly. Just one more yeah. um, note. Um, dude, the CSCS course that you put together. So, oh, yeah. so I don't, I don't even know if like, this is something that you still really like manage too much, but this, this would have been what, like 2018, whenever you started putting that together. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, yeah. At the, yeah, you, you talk about this. You talk about this because I'm not going to pull Yeah, no, it's something that's been evolving, actually, because, yeah. like, actually, if you think about it, like, the the NSCA and the CSCS is, like, meant to evolve. And it, it actually does really well, I think. Like, uh, it's probably, like, a little bit behind in terms of, like, uh, current practice. And, and it naturally has to be because they publish a book every decade, right? So it's, like you know, protein recommendations are, are definitely out of date. <laughs> like, um, but th- they actually will update things like that. Um, even between publications of the book. And and that's interesting because like, um, <laughs> that's why people need like something like a course or like something like a group to study from, to get these like updates, um, and, and stay and, and like understand basically like what we as like a collective society know about strength conditioning. And, uh, at least at the at the at the entry level um to the profession if you can understand those rules well like i think i think a lot of people need to understand those rules really well before they try to break them you know because um some people want to like develop a really strong belief on on one topic or another um but i think it's it's a good it's typically a good idea to learn the rules before you break them and that's that's what the cscs allows you to do so yeah luckily um I, I just have like a really strong interest in, in sports performance and, and exercise science and, and things that are covered on the CSCS. So I started making educational videos on it and it kind of took off. And then it's just been an evolving thing ever since, like iterating on the, on the course to make it better and better and communicate ideas more clearly and help people understand these concepts really well. So that instead of like their introduction to the, uh, cardiovascular system, just being like a bunch of like pictures and things that they the detailed physiology that they learn in whether that be like an exercise science course or class or a university well, like instead like i think the course really helps them apply it to athletes really well and like understand like how it relates to training decisions so that's like really the benefit of at least my approach to studying for the cscs is that, that it really gives you like the tools to start to apply this detailed physiological information to real people yeah, no, and I, I completely agree with that. I will say that I think the only way that I've been able to pass the CSCS, um, oh, and I've, I've taken it three times. I think, yeah, three times. I've passed it three times. Um, but yeah, yeah, but like, like, funny, funny enough is like I've never studied for the CSCS. Okay, like it's it sounds like kind of shitty to say that because I know that a lot of people study super hard and like they still struggle to pass it. I've just worked with so many clients over the years in person and online. Once you do that, you have enough practical information and enough practical knowledge. You can, yeah. you can backtrack and almost like import your own knowledge onto whatever problem you're looking at and overlay that and think about, okay, like if this were a real life situation, what would I do? And it just becomes so crystal clear because you've done it a million times, you know, 
So like mm -hmm. it might not actually be perfect according to what like the NSDA and what they're saying is is the the proper way of doing it. But you can almost always get there. You can almost always get to to the right answer. And that's luckily what I've been able to do. But I agree with you 100% where putting together some kind of course, creating a community and updating that as well, it creates more of a, a practical aspect to something that is typically more like textbook based. And uh, I agree heavily that you can only get so far with reading words and, you know, looking at diagrams, looking at pictures, like it has to be brought to life in some capacity, whether that's, you know, you working with clients, whether that's you talking to other people who are also going through the same process, um, whether you asking questions from like an instructor and getting like those detailed breakdowns, everyone learns very differently, but the CSCS is something that it's meant to be dynamic because you're you're working in dynamic settings. That's how you're applying this information anyway. So it really makes no sense to just be able to read it out of a textbook and then regurgitate it. Like you have to be able or you have to know how to do this in practice. So that's something that I, I always really appreciate about how you went about putting that course together. And I think at the very beginning, like you even contacted me and like we were talking about doing oh, yeah, yeah. it. Um, and that was like right whenever my business started to like really explode and get super busy. So I'm pretty sure like, yeah, was that, was that 2018? It was around there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think you put together some of the endocrine stuff. Like you were like, dude, yeah, like let's do it. And then, uh, it ended up being like a bigger project than I had expected. So I think like once we, what happens. <laughs> once we kind of like a few hours into it, you kind of parted ways and you were like, yeah, yeah, good luck. <laughs> but I respect, <laughs> yeah. I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, that's funny because that's how every project goes in business, right? Like every single project feels like yeah. something that should take like a week to do with like a really strong effort. And then you're like six months later, you're like, shit, I did not expect this, you know? But um, it's funny because I know of a lot of, even my own clients, my own clients, my own friends that have taken your course over the years. And they're like, dude, I would not be able to pass the CSCS without taking Matt's course, which is honestly super dope. Like it's super fucking cool that you've been able to do that. Um, and now it's just kind of like a passion project that you have as well. Right. Like that's kind of what that is now. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. I, I love doing it. And like, uh, I honestly think like I learn a lot whenever I just keep like, mm -hmm. keep going back to like the basics of like how muscular adaptations work and like how, uh, like collagen synthesis and tendon formation works and how like, the cardiovascular system responds to different forms of training. And there's like, there's like so many deeper levels to it. Like you can learn about like cardiovascular physiology and like the heart chambers and blood flow and like what a VO two differences and VO two max and heart rate zones and things like that. But then you could also go into like training timelines. Like how long do these adaptations last? And like, how long is detraining and, and to what extent do certain adaptations interfere or enhance other adaptations? And it's like, but you kind of have to learn the basics really, really well and keep going back to those before you try to like grasp onto all these like more difficult concepts, because like, it's, it's pretty hard to understand, like, for example, like detraining timelines and interference effect and, uh, like other things like that without like really understanding the cardiovascular system well to begin with. So that, that's always important to come back to. And you even mentioned before, like first principles, right? I think with physiology with training with coaching people through how to exercise how to eat right how to recover correctly like that can all be broken down into physics do you know physics like do you know how forces are applied do you know how 
you know, mass moves mass, you know, like all of these different small aspects of things that you probably overlooked, like, you know, in 11th grade, but all of a sudden like are super important now, right? Like, like vectors of force, like these things, they're incredibly important. Chemistry, like, do you, do you understand chemistry at a, at a relatively deep level? If you understand chemistry, then you understand a lot of what's going on in the body. Like you, you can understand like what's happening in a muscle cell. You can understand, you know, how pressure is being distributed in the lungs and how that applies to, you know, like oxygen percentage in your bloodstream. And like all of these things, they can be broken down into like these very, very simple principles, very simple thought processes. And if you just understand those, like you can extrapolate outward infinitely. And I think that that's a great way of going about putting together some kind of course like this, because it's really easy to, to be sucked into like the sexiness of like the really granular concepts and like the really fun shit, right? Like things that everyone is like drawn to like, oh yeah, I want to learn about this, but it's hard to learn about, you know, Y, unless you know about X, it's hard to know about X, unless you also know about A, B, C, D, E, all of those things, right? It's just a, it's a compounding process over time. Uh, but knowing the first principles of just broad science is incredibly important. And then like what I mentioned a second ago, psychology, whenever you're coaching people as well. And for you, maybe not coaching them, but like instructing them, teaching them. Yeah. yeah. That psychology is incredibly, incredibly important. So uh, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but I definitely want to start getting into more of like, you know, the the granular stuff that we are maybe just uh, lamenting against. Yeah, no, I mean, like I, we can go into any of these adaptations yeah. or like specifically, I think that'll be an interesting conversation to go next to. Yeah, no, let's let's definitely jump into the muscular ad- adaptations. I think that's something I could probably add the most to, and that might be the easiest transition. Um, no, man. So, how do you think about hypertrophy these days? Because I think in general, hypertrophy for you is it's a bucket that you can pull from. Hypertrophy for me is the entire bucket at this point, right? Like, it's, oh, yeah, yeah. it's all I think about. Oh. Um, so, like, how do you view hypertrophy in the grand scheme of a more like you know broad training approach, more hybrid training approach that you're kind of going after these days? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's like, um, Kevin Durant benches 185 pounds, you know, so like how important is like, is like, I see like, did you watch the NBA finals? Like you think Jokic like lifts a lot of weights Yeah, or like jumps? No, he's like, I don't jump. I just play basketball. Skill. It's like the quote. Yeah. So it's like, it's funny because like we, as like strength conditioning professionals often think about like strength as like the outcome but like the real outcome is like often sports performance in like a sports performance setting and um even like for general population clients like they're the outcome they're optimizing for isn't even like strength like or or hypertrophy for the most part like they probably do want to look better so like it's it's not a bad outcome to push towards but um i, I think in in a lot of cases at least a lot of the cases that i see is like it's it's something that's a factor so, um, in terms of like training decisions, it's, it's like a, a lot of my decisions are like, let's just say, for example, time under tension, like you can do slow eccentrics and it's not a terrible training strategy for some people. And like, I, but if I have like athletes, I'm probably not going to do a whole bunch of like high volume training. I'm not going to do a whole bunch of like slow eccentrics. I'm not going to do a bunch of these things that are going to cause like a fair amount of like muscle soreness because like the 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 bucket that I'm trying to fill is is 
more so in something like uh, like elastic and neuromuscular adaptations. So it's like if I if I put all my training stress towards like mechanical tension and like uh, get a bunch of associated soreness, then I'm I'm not going to be effectively filling the buckets of like high neuromuscular stress and like high elastic component to exercises. And and you can look at this from like a bunch of different angles, like just from just from the angle of like specificity. If we if we choose to do two second concentric, two second eccentrics, and there's like a pretty good study on this, maybe in like 2017 or something like that. But it's like if we choose to do two second concentric, two second eccentric versus two second concentric, four second eccentric, slow eccentric, we actually see more specific eccentric strength with the eccentric, the longer eccentric protocol, more specific concentric strength with the concentric protocol over eight or 12 weeks with someone who's moderately trained, this might equate to like a slightly higher at to some percentage, maybe 20 pounds in this study or whatever cohort it was to a higher concentric one rep max with a two second, two second protocol. Whereas like the person who do does slow eccentrics might actually have slightly higher measures of hypertrophy from the longer time under tension. Um, they might have slightly higher eccentric specific strength, but that just comes down to like specificity and like what, what do you, the clients that you're working with actually need? Like, do they need that slightly higher eccentric strength and hypertrophy or do they need higher concentric strength because they did more reps and more time of concentric training with that protocol. And it's just like, obviously one kind of zoomed in example to illustrate like the broader point that like the rules of like hypertrophy training don't apply to everyone exactly no i i definitely think that that's a great point to make because it's something that i think gets lost really easily whenever you're training any specific client right everyone mm -hmm. just assumes maybe not you but everyone in my world would assume that whenever a client comes in they want to be stronger and they want to be more muscular like that's just the the default assumption so the default training would look like hypertrophy training because hypertrophy training is going to cover strength for the most part, you know, just to, to a general degree. Yeah. Most people don't care too much about like their one rep max on a squat, but they care about, you know, being able to squat heavy for eight to 10 reps. Like that's important for a lot of people. Um, but they really care about looking good, being muscular. Like that's why, or at least that's our projection of what they care about most of the time whenever they come in. Um, often though, what gets kind of pushed away is just feeling better, moving better, having the ability to, you know, carry bag of groceries down the street if need be, you know, pick up their child without injuring their low back, right? Having that resiliency, the ability to decelerate, accelerate, jump if need, land if need be, right? Like if you slip off the stairs, yeah. be able to catch yourself without blowing your your quad tendon out, right? Um, so that dynamism is incredibly important for anybody who wants to live a normal life. If you're a bodybuilding competitor and your sole goal is stepping on a stage for, you know, 10 seconds out of 365 days, that's very specific, right? If you're a powerlifter yeah. who is on like a world-class level, they're trying to break uh, a world record. That's a very specific person, but most people have a blend of goals, right? There's a, a massive blending. I like that you use the eccentric example because I think eccentric Eccentric overloading is a very hypertrophy dominant technique. Hypertrophy dominant, also like, I guess, rehab dominant, if you want to go towards like, you no know, tendon adaptations as well, rehab. 
Um, but especially if you're doing it in a more normal application, it's it's very you know hypertrophy dominant. You're going for that mechanical tension, that that overloading there. Um, but a lot of ways, focusing on the eccentric is kind of like what you mentioned, kind of counter to what you'd want in the real world, where in the real world, you you want to move quickly. You want to be able to to jump and accelerate quickly. And usually there's like a stretch reflex associated with that. There's a deceleration, then there's a quick acceleration in the opposite direction. Eccentric training is very much not like that. You know, it's kind of like um, creating an artificial stimulus that isn't what we would normally encounter in the real world. Um, but with that, you know, I know that we had talked or you'd mentioned here like fiber type change, really focusing on eccentric overloading. Is there any benefit to doing that from like fiber type conversion perspective? Like, so going from like type one to type two, like would that potentially be a reason why you might want to employ some some strategy like that if you're going for a not specifically hypertrophy goal? Yeah, so um, well, it's important to clarify like eccentric overload versus like accentuated eccentrics. Okay, it's yeah. like good point. Yeah, yeah, because like if you're doing like if you're doing true eccentric overload. Um, if we like, here, I'll draw it. You can't, the viewers can't see it, but like, you're probably familiar with like this, this type of graph where it's like eccentric strength, concentric strength, where it's like, um, basically there's like kind of a curve to it, but like you can produce almost twice as much force at the, at the very high end of like the, like an, an overloaded eccentric as you can during a concentric. So even if during like a concentric motion, you're or sorry, even if during an eccentric motion, like you're you're doing the most amount of weight that you can still do the concentric portion. So like say a um like a really slow bicep curl, just to keep it really simple. If you can do the curl, if you can curl on the way up and you're just doing a slow curl on the way down, then the most amount of force production that you're getting on the on the eccentric or the slow lowering portion is around 50 to maybe 60% of your total ability to produce force on the eccentric like you couldn't produce a hundred percent of force on the way down but the, even if you can do the concentric the most you're doing on that slow eccentric is like around 50 to 60 percent that means that the associated muscle fiber type is it's actually largely slow twitch fibers that can control they can they can do because basically like you're only using like half of what you could like if you were to you know, do a cheater curl and like throw the weight up more than you could concentrate curl. And then you can slowly lower it down. That would start to become true eccentric overload. At that point, you can get to the point where you're producing 70%, 80%, 90% of the true eccentric force potential that you could get to. And, and there's actually certain benefits to that. Like there's actually some interesting benefits to, um, muscle fascicle lengthening which has some interesting ramifications. So fascicle length, meaning like, um, I guess the simplest way to put this would be like, like there's, there's like muscle and then there's also like other, uh, connective tissue. Like you have Titan within the muscle. That's like an elastic component. You have your fascia, you have tendon, um, long story short, like the eccentric load helps with the elastic components as well as muscular components and in a specific way that you can build a little bit more length and in control of length so this is like kind of the rationale for like nordic hamstring curls um there's 
a reason that we would do true eccentric overload. And I think athletes would benefit from true eccentric overload. Um, one, another associated reason is like the innervation effect. So muscle fiber type change. And that more so has to do with the fact that we're actually recruiting our fast twitch fibers with our slow eccentric, which is kind of ironic. People think like fast twitch means the fast movements, but it really just is far force dependent, like, and, and very load dependent. So we're getting into these very, very fast switch fibers, which whether this is like for a runner or whether it's for your 50 year old mom who doesn't want to de-innervate and become like less dexterous, like it, there's benefits to getting into those fast, fast switch fibers and getting some training load, um, to these elastic components, to these fast switch fibers. So, so there's definitely benefit to some of these principles. It's just like, how do you apply it? And, um, how do you dose it in appropriately? Because like, it's, it's like, you could do this for like all of your sets. Like that could be like your, your broader training strategy. Probably you don't need that, that like, it, it's going to be pretty taxing for like a lot of people. Whereas, but like you could, um, if you're working with a 40 year old, 30 year old, 35 year old dad of two, who's like a, that like Achilles tendon, uh, like rupture risk category, you know, like people who generally haven't loaded their Achilles tendon a lot over the last few years. And they, they generally are in that, that window, like 30 to 50 years, years old, you're like kind of at highest risk of Achilles tendon rupture. So this could be like a really good training strategy for that area for someone who wants to be able to run around and like do athletic things, but they also have this like risk. So it's just like applying the strategy in the right way to the right area for the right person. No, I, I'm really glad that you made the distinction between eccentric overloading and just slower eccentrics in general. One thing that I think about and kind of going to your point where, you know, mm -hmm. eccentric max might be a very sub max eccentric depending on the person. So if you do a 10 rep max bicep curl, you might be hitting failure at 10 reps, but eccentrically, you might be able to get five, six, seven more reps, just controlling the eccentric all the way down. If you have, you know, maybe you're doing it cheating it maybe you have a partner be able to assist you maybe there's like some mechanical advantage that you can kind of like utilize to, to go about doing that something that i use and we use a lot um at, at p2 is two up one down so i don't know how much you utilize a technique in. At, um, but especially for anyone who has any kind of like tendon issues i found that it's like a really great way to kind of warm up that tendon get everything lined up in a really solid way without creating any additional issues so something like a two up, one down uh, leg extension. I, I found like mm -hmm. a good way of helping out with tendonitis issues at the knee. Um, and you know, similarly, you can do other movements as well. You know, I've had a lot of success with building strength for for clients who want to do something like a push up, where or excuse me, a pull up. Pull up's a better example of this. But rather than just going in there and doing assisted pull up after assisted pull up and pull down after pull down, you go in and just do eccentric pull-ups. So you, all you do is perform the eccentric and you just lower yourself all the way down and then you step back up to the top and then eccentric again. So you might not be able to do a single pull-up under your own volition, but you might be able to get three, four, five controlled eccentrics with your body weight. And over time, you know, that's just overloading in a slightly different way. Um, different application to kind of like the same idea here, but I, I definitely agree with you that, um, you know, having some, some aspect of overloading the eccentric is probably going to be super important, whether that's from like a hypertrophy standpoint or whether that's like what well, just from you said, like a, a 
prevention of denervation and making sure that, you know, we're recruiting those type two fibers. We're making sure that we're getting like those high threshold motor units charged up and activated. Um, glad that you mentioned Nordic hamstring curl. I think that's a great example because that's something that I utilize and we utilize a lot as well, but no, we can move on from, from muscles, unless you have anything else you want to add. Nothing that actually segues well into like tendon adaptations, because I think a lot of people just don't really know how tendons respond to training. Like we kind of intuitively learn like, oh, our, our muscle attaches from here to here. And then we shorten it and we lengthen it and we load it. And like, we kind of know how to train muscles a lot of times, but like, how do we actually train the tendon? Like, do we do uh plyometrics for our Achilles tendon or do we do resistance training? Like how do, and what's the difference? Like, how do we know? And um the the principle like the if we bring it back to like the physiology like the, the principle of like muscle building is that we are at the very smallest level like we're causing some type of of damage or associated stress to like um the muscle components like the actin and the myosin we're building new muscle proteins right because we have these these cells that are essentially like undifferentiated they they need some information and when we cause some very small stress at like a, a very small level, these these undifferentiated cells decide that they're going to take on the characteristics of muscle and become a muscle cell. And that's and then we eat protein, and it it, it helps fuel this process of telling these nuclei to like turn into essentially make new muscle proteins, and then our muscle gets bigger, right? But there's a similar process that's simultaneously also occurring in the tendon, and that's collagen synthesis. So it's like Okay, well, how do we do that? Well, to build collagen, there's going to be structural loading that's that's relatively important. So we need to load the tissue just like we load muscle tissue. But for collagen, it seems like there's slightly different thresholds um, and, and also slightly different responses to high rate of stretch activities and high load activities. So if we decide that we're going to load our Achilles tendon, for example, with a high load activity, um, typically, if we're looking at something called Davis Law, Davis Law is like the soft tissue equivalent of Wolf's Law, which is like bone remodeling. But Davis Law for soft tissue remodeling is saying that we probably need to see somewhere around a 4% strain to the collagen to actually have a meaningful enough load to reform the collagen matrix and initiate collagen synthesis. And this is in normal healthy tissues, at least like if, if we're actually injured, we can get away with like less strain. And we'll talk about what strain means because it's not yeah. intuitive to anybody, yeah. but like we can get away with like less strain. If for example, um, I'm rehabbing someone who just had their Achilles completely ruptured and they're reforming it, but we're like a normal healthy individual who wants to improve and in properties, we, we actually need quite meaningful loads. Uh, and, and that 4% strain, although this isn't like a direct uh, carryover, like if we look at a lot of different studies on this, like that tends to be equivalent to around like an 85 to 90% uh, contraction strength of the Achilles tendon, which is actually really hard to get to. So um, we'll use the Achilles tendon first and then we'll go into like patellar tendon because these are both kind of interesting. So like for the Achilles tendon, like you really have to do a straight, straight leg calf raise. Like if you're doing a bent leg calf raise, like you're only able to deliver like roughly half the load because you're actively, your, your gastrocnemius becomes actively insufficient in that bent knee position. 
So from like a hypertrophy standpoint, like maybe we're going to get some soleus specific hypertrophy, but like if we just do the standing variation, we can deliver a lot more load and therefore a lot more strain through the Achilles tendon, a lot more load through all of that collagen matrix to actually create remodeling. But it's pretty hard that like you, you actually need quite a bit of load and, and, and no one really knows this or talks about it, which is why a lot of people end up, you know, failing PT because they, you know, your typical 25, 35, 40 year old person with like an Achilles tendon issue, they need probably three months of loading heavy calf raises near like a five to eight rep max, which like almost no one does. Like it's, it's pretty hard to do. Um, and, and do consistently for the time period that is required for this this adaptation. Um, but that's essentially what we need to work towards. Of course, you do need a starting point. Like if you just go in there and, and someone with a like flared up Achilles tendon, you just say, oh, well, you need a five rep max load on a single leg calf raise with extra load in, in your hand. It's like, that's probably going to get them like one session with you. <laughs> It'll just kind of hurt them more. But like if we're introducing it over time, um, like we just need to actually have that target of like these meaningful loads that are going to change tendon properties because there's like these laws of soft tissue remodeling that we have to abide by. Right. So it's like, uh, it, it comes back to like those first principles thinking like, is our first principle, the, the physiology of the, of the, the tissue, or is our first principle, like do no harm and like meet the patient where they're at. And like, those are both important, but like, we need to find a way to like blend those, I think. And, and sometimes like in the rehab context, I get frustrated because like a, a lot of the decision-making goes towards like um, more conservative strategies whenever like we do need meaningful loads to actually improve these properties. So uh, to keep, to carry on with this, like you can also benefit tendons from doing like plyometrics and like faster stretch rate things. Yeah. And we see specific adaptations from high load and from fast stretch rates and and one kind of prepares you for the other but not entirely there's like a, a fairly high degree of specificity here which is why like even if you're very very strong like if you start plyometrics you're probably going to be sore and you could very well get a tendinopathy if you do it too quickly yeah. like i think like if you look back to like the looping the stack the cscs book if you look back to like the old publications of the cscs book like this is like 2008 2010 i don't know like the idea was like, you need to squat one and a half times your body weight or two times your body weight before you can start plyometrics. And the idea was that like, oh, these, this, this high loading is, is maybe protective for some of these, uh, fast stretch rate activities. It turns out it's not very protective for fast rate stretch activities, but it does actually help you respond faster to plyometric like training. So if you can get really strong, you can, you can respond better because you have a higher ceiling of force potential. So you can like learn to produce force quickly, much easier because like, it doesn't matter how fast you can produce force if you can't produce very much force. So it's like kind of, an, it is important to have strength. There's like always this balance that's going on between, um, like heavy loaded activities and, and fast stretch activities and the associated adaptations. Um, but yeah, it's important to have that balance between the two. Do you want to get into patellar tendon too? Since no, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I I want to first kind of put put it back to you. I want to I want to ask you a question. So a lot of what you're saying is kind of counterintuitive to what okay. what to what one would like normally think about rehabbing or or creating like a, a protective shield around a tendon, right? So typically, mm -hmm. like we just think about this more as like you know keeping it with the Achilles. 
if my Achilles is flared up and bothering me, you know, maybe I haven't torn it, but it's, you know, it's aggravated. There's a lot of inflammation. There potentially is even like, you know, some, some straining going on. Like maybe it's more of a chronic issue. Mm-hmm. You tell me to be like, oh yeah, go in there, do, you know, heavy sets of five to eight on Sandy calf raises. Right. Mm-hmm. Obviously the context is important, but like, even just hearing that for a lot of people is going to sound very counterintuitive. You know, the, the more natural thing to assume would be rest, just rest it. Like the, the information will go away. It'll feel better. If you just rest, stay off of it. Where, yeah. where have those recommendations come from? Is it the do no harm where it's just the overly conservative approach rather than really getting to the crux of what the issue is? And what are some of like the potential negative outcomes that can happen from just resting rather than going and trying to get to the crux of the issue, which might be, you know, improving that collagen synthesis, you know, revamping the matrix and then, you know, obviously improving tendon strength versus just again, resting, which is typically what we would get recommended and what the prescription would be. Yeah. Well, I think part of that confusion comes from the fact that rest kind of sort of does work in some situations, mm-hmm. but not your actual goal. Yeah. It's like if you loaded a tendon and you rest, like your capacity will go down, but you're all, also like the amount that you're like stressing the tendon will go down even more. So it's like your capacity is going to go down, down, down. But like if you're not putting any stress and load through the tendon, like it probably won't get irritated. But then as soon as you go back to introduce load, like say you're a runner and your recommendation was just to rest your tendon for like a long time like the problem is like as soon as you go to introduce load your capacity is not even worse so like even if you try to go back to where you were or even less than where you were you're gonna just exceed it so like like if we just studied it for like six weeks and like the the only outcome that we cared about was like reducing pain then then kind of rest can work but like it we know for at least most people with like athletic and performance goals and even people who have to move throughout the day like it's probably not always the best strategy, but that said, there are like, there are cases where like rest actually is important. Like bone stress injuries, for example, like where, you know, people think of these as like stress fractures and this could happen at like the shin or the hip or uh, a bunch of places. Like in those cases, like actually rest is the best training strategy because like bone remodeling is, is something that doesn't, um, at least in the acute stages, like you actually, you actually would benefit from deloading. So it's like, you know, I don't want to say like load because there's like people who kind of go that route. It's like, you always need like heavy loads, fix everything. Like that's kind of also misleading. So I, I don't want that to be like the takeaway. It's just like applying load appropriately whenever it's the thing that solves the problem. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. I think that's a much better way of putting it. Um, no, we can definitely move on to, to the, what were we talking about? The quad tendon, patellar tendon. Yeah. Yeah. Being like the, the next route that we go. Sure. Yeah. Like I think people get like jumpers knee and, and this kind of like illustrates one broader point that I wanted to get to as well. So, um, just because like, um, so like, let's just say like we want to deliver that high strain through the patellar tendon because like, uh, let's, let's specify the context here first. Like to get patellar tendinopathy. Like you have to be really strong. Like if if you are not very strong, like you probably have what's called like or what we broadly classify as like patellofemoral pain syndrome, which is like more diffuse knee pain. Um, whereas like pain in the actual patellar tendon 
usually comes from like really strong athletic people. Like the people that I like that I've seen with it are like NFL athletes or like high school male high jumpers. Like um, like you have to have a pretty strong quad and like put a lot of strain through the quad before this actually becomes an issue. So at the root of like true patellar tendinopathy is like this issue of like there's some amount of degenerative tendon, there's some amount of like good healthy tendon. And like, what's our training strategy going to be? Is our training strategy going to be to treat the degenerative tendon with like lasers or iontophoresis or like ice or like rest and try to like help this degenerative portion of the tendon? That's actually not a good training strategy. Like we have at, at this point, like at least two or three decades of research to show that that's not the better training strategy. And like, we actually know that like people with this, these degenerative tendons or like degenerative portions of a tendon with a patellar tendinopathy actually tend to have overall greater cross-sectional area of their tendon because they form more healthy areas of the tendon. There's actually some evidence that the, the degenerative or the damaged portion of the tendon actually never potentially heals or recovers at all. It just stays there as degenerative for the most part, but we can expand the healthy matrix of the tendon and probably to some small extent also repair certain degenerative areas but like it doesn't it doesn't really matter because like you can have those degenerative areas and just have like a bunch of like really healthy strong robust tendon around that degenerative area and and have a really healthy strong non-painful tendon a couple weeks probably like closer to six or eight weeks later depending on the severity of like your symptoms but like this is this is the classic case of like jumpers knee right so it's like you did uh maybe bunch of strength training for a while but then you decided like i also want to dunk like that's a cool goal for me so like i'm gonna start jumping like every day <laughs> and like maybe you did it too quickly but like you're really strong so you might actually end up with a like, patellar tendinopathy or like you just did like a lot of jumping even if you did progressively but you did it for like a really long time like you did an nfl season of like very hard training like four hours a day or whatever and you ended up with patellar tendinopathy or I jumped like, and you put like a lot of load through like the specific like leg that you're taking off of in a specific way for this like three or four or five month training period of whatever you're doing. So it, for some reason, this tendon became like irritated and, and has some degenerative areas and you need to build that healthy tissue. How do you do that? Well, we need to again, think back to like Davis law and like, how do we deliver like high strain and how, well, how do we do that? Well, we get really strong contractions and that strong contraction though can only come from certain positions which is interesting because like even if you are doing for example a wall sit and you're going as hard as you can and you you stack the plates up or whatever like you get someone to stand on you and like you you really go hard on this wall sit and you go all the way to failure you still might only get to like a 60 percent contraction threshold which is interesting it's it's like this is now this is based on like a lot of interesting joint biomechanics that we're probably not gonna have time to go into and a lot of other things, but basically the positions of like exercises and movements dictate like how strongly you can contract your muscles. So like a wall, like a wall sit, you probably just won't be able to get as, as strong of a contraction. And we can measure this with a lot of interesting techniques as something like a Spanish squat. A Spanish squat is when you put like bands around your knees and now you're introducing like a different force vector and, and there's just like more load for um for like knee extension and also like the retro patellar force is actually a little bit stronger at like 
90 degrees of joint of knee flexion than it is at like like uh different positions and this the, there's a lot of competing variables for why but basically we can get like up to maybe a 70 or 75 80% contraction strength with a spanish squat position so that can actually get us close to the threshold of what we need to retrain the patellar tendon but that's actually probably the minimum that that works for probably the first four or six weeks of loading but to get to like 90% 100% where we're really delivering those high strains we probably need to get on like a leg extension machine and just crank against that really heavy resistance in um I don't know, maybe 135 degrees of, uh, in, in terms of like the angle, there's different like positions you could set it at and, and change it like over the time course of like rehabbing, but like that position can actually get us closer to that, like hundred percent, um, contraction threshold. And it, it might be the better training strategy, like later in the rehabbing process of this, this tendon. And, or if you're just like already healthy, like if you're already healthy, like it's going to be pretty hard to build your patellar tendon with like a wall sit. Yeah. Um, that's it might be like an appropriate introductory load to like, if it's like acutely inflamed and you just want to like introduce low load for 30 seconds, 45 seconds before you go Olympic lift. So again, there's like a place for it, but like, it depends on like what specific adaptation we're chasing. If we're chasing the adaptation of like really truly building these tendons, um, we probably would benefit from that like leg extension position for example and this is just this loops back to the uh, the the broader principle that like we need to put ourselves in the appropriate position and with the appropriate load to solve the specific problem that we have and it takes a lot of i, I guess time and like experience and, and looking at research and looking at how people respond to training to come up with these um principles and positions and exercises that best solve your client's problems <laughs> Before we go any further, I, I want to clarify what a Spanish squat is because you, you mentioned oh, yeah. put bands around your knees. I feel like for a lot of people, they might be hearing that and not understanding oh, yeah. that doesn't mean like a mini band around your, your knees, around your thighs to cue abduction. A Spanish squat is bands around the, the backs of your knees, pulling your knees or attempting to pull your knees into flexion. So whenever you stand up and you lock out your knees, you're actually extending against the band. So it's like, like a terminal knee extension squat. For anybody who knows what what TKEs are, um, but I love Spanish squats. I've been doing them for a long time. I agree with you 100. Like they're absolutely phenomenal for for tendon strength, for kind of like getting that that reorganization effect, which I have really often uh, you know needed with my own tendons, my own quad tendons, patellar tendons that have just been awful since I was a teenager. Um, I utilize Spanish squats a lot for for myself and also for any clients that might be looking to bring up their quads again taking this back to hypertrophy angle might be needing to bring up their quads but don't have a leg extension machine or maybe the leg extension machine like bothers their knees for whatever for whatever reason because not every leg leg extension machine uh is created equal so i've used some that feel phenomenal and like they don't bother my knees at all and some that just like i can you know use 20 pounds and i'm like this is just grading my my tendons grading my knees right now um and it, whenever you were talking about you know just cranking on a leg extension machine Sounds more like you're talking about like a like an isometric hold rather than just like going and doing like a five rep max, correct? Yeah, it's typically an isometric hold. I, you know, I I think the isometric holds a really good place to 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 put a, like a lot of effort into because you're you're really maximizing the load to like the the tendon and the connective tissue elements without 
having a lot of mechanical overload and, and associated soreness. So it's, it's like a really good training strategy, especially like if I'm working with someone who's also like doing speed training or skill training or something like that in association with it. But if you're your only tangential goal is hypertrophy, then those two up, one down could work as well. Yeah, no, that that's pretty much where my head has always gone. Um, for the hypertrophy angle, isometrics might not be that correlated to actually growing muscle, especially for you know looking at one unit of effort. What does that contribute in terms of like stimulus versus fatigue? It like might not be worth, just might not be worth the squeeze in terms of hypertrophy. But if we're targeting tendon strength, it might be like those are those are the trade offs that we're looking at. It depends on what the goal is. I do want to take this one step back a little though because we've talked about straining straining a few times but i don't think we've really defined what straining means so you mentioned davis law four percent strain you want to kind of dive uh-huh. that like what what does straining in this context actually mean yeah and this is actually something that i this would be like a, on the border of my, my knowledge admittedly okay. <laughs> but like i think and i think like as a as like a clinician or as like a a trainer who's applying this like the there, there gets to be like a level of depth where this becomes like, uh, like too, too difficult to apply. Like there's, there's a lot of like associated principles with, with strain, like, um, that ha- that have to do with like how much, I guess like how much like the, like element yields. Like there's like, there's a lot of like there's Young's modulus which factors into this and like. If you want to dive into tendon research, you could probably figure out what strain means a little bit more. But like I would, I, the way that I would think about it is like, um, it's like a measure of how much we're loading a specific like element of tissue, like the tendon. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, but there's not a practical way for like, actually you could get a strain gauge and there's like been, and this is actually like pretty recent, like in the last like three or four years there've been research studies where they've actually sent patients home with like some form of like strain gauge, but it's actually like a fairly emerging area. So I, I wouldn't be able to explain exactly what it means. Well, the, the important thing there is to, to note the difference between strain in terms of, of tendon strength and rebuilding that tendon structure versus strain in terms of like effort, like those, those yeah, we're, not, we're not talking about the same thing, like straining in terms of like, you know, a one rep max, and you know working really hard and feeling like that pressure build up in your head that's not the strain that we're talking about here yeah yeah like there's no way like yeah there's no way to like intuitively understand what like four percent strain feels like so like we're just looking for correlates which is usually like how the the strength of the muscle contraction because that's at least something that we kind of can intuitively understand um like a 90 percent strength contraction of our calf is like a, a really hard contraction that like feels really hard and and we we have to set ourselves in specific positions to get to it but like yeah i think that's that's a good way to think about it and maybe if i come back on the podcast in a few years once this is more fleshed out and i understand it better then maybe we could uh dive into it even deeper well that's i mean that's an exciting aspect too of like where research is going is you know if things are moving fast enough to where you know it's happening quicker than you can even learn about it then I think that's a, that's a good thing, right? Like that means that yeah. serious effort, serious funding is going into like improving these different aspects, which is a very positive sign. Like that's actually what we want. Like if we're experiencing a field that has been stagnant for the last 30 years, like that's probably not a good thing if we're using the same, you know, gauges, the same monitors, the same like equipment that our our parents did, you know? We definitely don't want that. Um, 
But no, I think maybe we can move on to like you know, bone adaptations. Yeah, yeah. I think bone adaptations are really interesting. Like um, a lot of people think of bone adaptations as like important for like adults, like older adults, which it certainly is. Like, but the time we really build bone is like in use. Like, the, 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 uh, and honestly, like our bone mineral density is is largely formed before the age of twenty, and then we just kind of slowly lose it for like a really long time. And it's like, how fast do we lose it? Well, it, it depends on like the loading that you're doing and the and and things like that. But like, the real time to like impact this is for youth especially for youth female athletes like in middle school and high school like and it doesn't take a lot like i think if i could get like a message out to like everyone i'd be like high school and middle school cross-country runners jump at least a few times because like just 10 reps uh i think it was like something along the order of like 30 like three sets of 10 reps of like maximal jumping uh maybe two or three times a week for like youth female athletes significantly improved bone mineral density and it's like it's so little effort for like such a big payoff it's like and and, uh, we know like at least like athletes who are built with like these very narrow structures and like um generally like smaller bodies do often struggle like as competitive runners with bone stress injuries like like chin issues and hip issues and and this can sideline a runner for a year like there's professional triathletes who are out for like an entire year because they have like this bone stress injury to their hip that, you know, it's, it's hard to say for any individual, but like if maybe if they loaded their bone with like, um, the jumping exercises and with, um, heavier squats and like we're introduced to load, like in middle school and high school during these like peak bone remodeling and growth phases, they could have laid down like a little bit more tissue and and bone structure in that hip that could have set them up for like a more robust foundation or that can carry them through like a competitive running career a little bit more healthy. You're right. And, and um, this is something that we don't like think about as like a muscular adaptation, just thinking about it from a muscle perspective, but it's, it's really important. And I think that's actually one of the good things that comes out of like, you know, bodybuilding culture and like the introduction of a lot of people to strength training through like bodybuilding is like, we learn to load our structure and bones well at a relatively young age. I think like more so like we were seeing the benefits of that at like 13, 14 year olds, 15 year olds, 12 year olds, like eight year olds, like as long as you're appropriate with it. Like there's a lot of like really, really big benefits that, that these, these youth athletes can build like from a motor control perspective, from a bone mineral density perspective, um, that can carry, carry them into like a healthy athletic career moving forward. Do you want to kind of quickly debunk the lifting stunts, young athletes' growth? Like, uh, I think that's oh, yeah, yeah. that's something that I'm sure you heard growing up. I definitely heard it growing up, and it was something that was pretty prevalent for a long time. That if you lift heavy weights too early, that you're going to close your growth plates, right? Like, it, like they're going to fuse. You're never going to grow another inch. Um, and it's just it's a product of lifting too heavy too early too much intensity, too much volume, et cetera, et cetera. But you're saying actually the opposite. You're saying, no, you need to load your bone structure. You need to lift heavy. You need to do these things at an early age because that's actually how you're going to strengthen your bones. So where, where's the disconnect in, in that advice? Like where did we go wrong previously? <laughs> like, like, like where did those prior recommendations come from? 
Yeah, this is interesting because like I think this is like the first generation, especially for like young females where they're seeing like uh, a good example of like strength training of people like them that are older than them. You know, because like even when we were growing up like in, I don't know, 2007, like what was it like bodybuilding and muscle and fitness magazines, which were like mostly male dominated and like just talked about like how to get big muscles. But like now there's like, there's like the hybrid athlete, like who wants to run and lift weights and like be like a healthy, strong endurance athlete There's that people can like look up towards. And like, there's also like, um, just like even in sport, like there's just a broader range, a slightly broader range of like physiologies and like sizes. Um, like one of the guys who, who won, like the, you know, Christian Blumenfeld, he, he won the Olympic triathlon. He's like this yeah barrel look dude yeah and i'm like and it, it kind of opened a lot of like endurance athletes eyes to like the fact that like like mass like having low mass isn't everything like it, it it like he's he's a really efficient runner he's a really efficient cyclist and um it, it just kind of opens your eyes to like the importance of all these other associated ap- adaptations because like really to to be good at triathlon you just need to be able to handle 30 plus like at the, that, the very elite level you need to be able to handle 30 hours probably a week of like pretty intense training and it's like well how do you do that like you have to be pretty robust like these these uh triathletes they're not bodybuilding they're not lifting like four times a week like they're probably lifting once or twice a week especially like during competitive seasons probably more in the off season but they are delivering like high loads to their tissues at least enough throughout the entire training year and enough year to year consistently to to remain healthy and and like seeing that um kind of changes the changes like a little bit of like the mindset of like youth athletes and coaches and things like that and, and i think this like culturally changes like slowly as well as like as we have like different things that we prioritize right so um <laughs> i might have already forgotten the original question but like i think it's it's interesting that like the hybrid athlete the the athlete who's pursuing more than just like one specific goal can really do well at like at high level and, and perform well and like youth athletes seeing that and and not specializing uh is is probably a good thing oh oh yeah back to like bone uh and like you might lifting weights yeah <laughs> growth plates yeah, yeah. so I, I actually don't even know where that original like notion came from like maybe i don't know like maybe there's like a lot of this stuff was like really detailed like theoretical you know literature like Maybe you're looking around and seeing that bodybuilders tended to be shorter than everybody else. Who knows, man? Yeah, maybe. Like they're like, oh, bodybuilders are short, so yeah. like, yeah. and they drink coffee, so coffee and lifting makes you short. Like, is that what they told you? <laughs> and they all have like Austrian accents. <laughs> I don't know, like where it came from, but yeah, like um, it's it's interesting because it's like I don't like a United States thing, like um. Uh, there's probably other cultures as well, but like there's a lot of cultures like where weightlifting is is highly encouraged like throughout youth. Um, yeah, yeah, gymnastics is interesting too. Like, um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of routes we can go with that, but yeah, no, I, I think like the um, there's there's probably like a limit. Like you you probably don't want to like give your five year old like max sets of like a whole bunch of stuff, but like if you're introducing lifting appropriately, like it really just comes down to like maturity and like can a youth athlete actually like do they want to do this like uh can they 
do it safely? And um, do they have like supervision? They're not like pinching their fingers and like dropping things on their toes. Like, I, don't, I don't know. Like that's more of a, a concern often than the actual like having a weight on your back and squatting up and down, like closing your growth plates. Like that's, yeah, that's not really much of a concern. Well, another thing would be too, just like teaching kids proper technique at a young age. Uh, I would imagine that would be a much bigger concern than just <laughs> lifting would be lifting improperly because I mean, it's one thing if you are doing like, you know, a set with 70% of your one rep max as a 12 year old, but if you're doing a set with, you know, 90% of your one rep max, but you're quarter squatting it with horrific form, like that might be doing some, some serious damage to your skeleton, maybe not closing, closing the, the growth plates, but, you know, potentially setting you up for some, some damage later on, especially if you're ingraining some poor motor patterns and, and, you know, um, different ways of going about those, those squatting mechanics. But, uh, no, I definitely don't want to take up too much of your time. I know that we were maybe going to talk about like some cardiovascular training, but, uh, I think that we're probably getting to like the, the upper limits of where we want this, this podcast episode to go. And maybe we could turn the all up one at some point where we could dive into some more deeper, uh, physiological stuff, because I know that you and I could probably talk uh, more in depth about a lot of stuff in this world, in this realm. But is there anything that you want to add before I let you go? Because I want to be super respectful of your time, obviously. No, it's interesting. Like it, it's good to have these conversations. But yeah, like you said, like is uh, there's so many places we can go. Maybe we'll maybe we'll have you on the podcast again on on the Movement System podcast or something to 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 really keep going with this stuff. No, man, I would love that. I would love that. Just let me know, and I'll definitely try and make time. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, other no, like I think some of the principles like. I hope people got from this episode is like um, just like learning to solve problems kind of takes time and it takes like looking at things from like a different angle. So if you're solving like a, like a tenant issue for yourself or for someone like make sure you're solving that with like an appropriate strategy and um, you know, think back to some of the physiology, how that relates to training and then, then make your decision-making. Awesome, dude. That's, that's great. I really appreciate you being on here. Is there anything that you want to plug any place that people can find more information about you, your YouTube channel, your Instagram, maybe like the CSCS course, if they're interested in that, like where can people find more information? Yeah, sure. Like, um, I think, uh, I put a lot of work into YouTube videos. Like the, those tend to do to be like a good place to learn. Um, so you just set search the movement system on YouTube. You could search the movement system on podcasts and listen to some podcasts. So perhaps ramble about detailed physiological concepts of training with like, pretty cool people. Um, you could search Instagram, the movement system. And then, yeah, I, I have a website with stuff as well. So you can search the movement system.com. We have, we actually have a couple of training programs on there now. We're expanding to some continuing education for those who already have their CSCS, but then for those who are interested in getting their CSCS, we also do have, um, a course to help you with that. So basically learning all of the principles to confuse a lot of people with the detailed CSCS book in a more easy to learn video format with like quiz questions to go along with it. So if that's something you're interested in, you can definitely check that out as well. Dude, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on here. Obviously a wealth of knowledge. We could do this for a lot longer than an hour and a half, but maybe we'll again, have to do this at some point, uh, follow up at some point, but dude, thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>